Greetings, and welcome to Etzheim's weekly podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. Shabbat Shalom. We're continuing in our series in the book of Proverbs, a Sefer Mishlei. Uh, today is part five. We're going to be looking today at the, the two great tests for wisdom. Uh, so turn with me to uh, Proverbs 3, beginning in verse 9. We're going to be reading a number of verses from Proverbs 3, Proverbs 10, and Proverbs 24. So Proverbs 3, verse 9 to 12, we're going to start with. Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. Then your barns will be filled to overflowing, uh, and your vats will brim over with new wine. My son, don't despise the Lord's discipline, and don't resent his rebuke. Because the Lord disciplines those he loves. As a father, the son he delights in. The wages of the righteous bring them life, but the income of the wicked brings them punishment. When the storm has swept by, the wicked are gone, but the righteous stand firm forever. If you falter in times of trouble, how small is your strength? Rescue those being led away to death. Hold back those staggering toward the slaughter. If you say, but we knew nothing about this, does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who guards your life know it? Will he not repay each person according to what he has done? We're looking at Proverbs on wisdom. How, how do we become wise? Uh, uh, through learning, uh, great education, finding a guru, uh, becoming worldly wise, uh, well-traveled, uh, sophisticated? No. According to the book of Proverbs, this is not how we gain wisdom. And a perfect illustration of that in modern literature is uh, Agatha Christie's Miss Marple. Miss Marple, she's an amateur sleuth, a uh, detective in many of Agatha Christie's most famous murder mysteries. Uh, Miss Marple, she's a frumpy elderly little old lady who sits around knitting and yet she always always ends up saving the day she always is the one who figures out who done it why because she understands people and human nature nothing and so therefore nothing shocks her uh, nothing surprises her uh, and in one of the episodes, this uh, Scotland Yard chief inspector is talking to one of his detective friends about a murder investigation. We'll put it on the overhead. This is what the chief inspector says. He says, I know it's hard to believe, but that little old lady sitting downstairs in the hotel by the fireplace knitting is the greatest criminologist in all of England. <laughs> there she sits, an elderly spinster, sweet, placid, or so you'd think, Yet her mind has plumbed the depths of human iniquity and taken it all in, in a day's work. She's lived all her life in this little, old, little rural village of St. Mary Mead. It's extraordinary. She knows the world only through the prism of this village and its daily life. But by knowing the village so thoroughly, she seems to know the world. Uh, and through this chief inspector, Agatha Christie, she's making a statement. Uh, that's very close to what Proverbs says. He was the greatest criminologist in all of England, but she's not a world traveler. She's not sophisticated. She's not a university scholar. But the point is this. The secrets of wisdom are locked 
in your ordinary, daily, common experiences if you know how to learn from them. And she did. And not many of us do. Now, according to the book of Proverbs, there are two particular common experiences, two particular situations that when you're in them, you're in a moment of both great spiritual danger and great spiritual opportunity. Uh, They're tests. And if you pass the test, you become wiser. Wiser about yourself and about the world and about human nature. But if you fail the test and you don't respond properly, you become more of a fool. Uh, You become more hard, more bitter, uh, more out of touch with how things really are and and with who you are. So, on the overhead, let's look at three things today about wisdom, about these two tests. Uh, number one, uh, what are these two tests? Number two, uh, how do they work? Uh, and number three, how can you and I pass them? So first, what are these tests? Look at Proverbs 3, verse 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him, and he will direct your paths. This is wisdom. Because our lives are a series of branching forks in the road. Should I take this job or that one? Should I attend this school or this one? Should I date this person or not? These are all forks in the road of your life. And the Bible says when you have God's wisdom, this wisdom will guide you on the right path. So how do we get this wisdom? Uh, In verses 9 to 12, there are two situations that are brought before us, and they're they're juxtaposed uh, deliberately. They seem like they don't belong together, and yet they're juxtaposed. In verses 9 to 10, we have this, uh, uh, the experience of of prosperity. Uh, Look at Proverbs 3, verse 9. Honor the Lord with your wealth, uh, with the first fruits of all your crops. Then your barns will be filled to overflowing, and your vats will brim over with new wine. Now, if you only had just these two verses, it sure looks like it's saying, if you obey the Lord, if you have a good relationship with God, uh, then you'll have a prosperous life, right? That's what it says. But then deliberately, the next two verses, 11 and 12, seem to be a complete non sequitur, a complete disconnect. Suddenly, it talks about something completely different. Look at Proverbs 3, verse 11. My son, don't despise the Lord's wisdom. Don't resent his rebuke, because the Lord disciplines those he loves as a father, the son he delights in. Now, this word discipline means, among other things, it means pain. So, for example, when you discipline one of your children, uh, let's say they lie to you, and you say, go to your room, and and, uh, you can't go to your friend's birthday party now. You're bringing pain into the child's life. Discipline involves pain. Now, this is not saying that that God allows pain into the lives of some people. It doesn't say the Lord disciplines some that he loves. It says he disciplines those he loves, meaning all those he loves. Verses 9 through 12, they're deliberately putting in front of you this fact. No matter who you are, even if you're as close to God as you possibly can be, you will experience both prosperity uh, and adversity both success and suffering, everything going your way, nothing going your way. Now, most of the time, we don't experience a great deal of either. 
uh, on the overhead, though. Uh, but you'll have times of great success, and you'll have times of great suffering. You'll have times when, when everything's going your way, and when nothing is going your way. And these are the two moments of testing. There's nothing more spiritually dangerous than to be succeeding. And there's nothing more spiritually dangerous than to be suffering. Uh, on the overhead, there's nothing more spiritually dangerous than prosperity and adversity. Why? Because these two experiences bring out the hidden stuff in your heart uh, that you don't even know is there. Uh, there's bad stuff in your heart that you don't believe is there, that you don't expect to be there, that you deny is there. But these two situations bring them out. And then you can hopefully accept what you see, embrace what you see, build your life on, on this new insight, repent and change and transform your life and become wiser and wiser. Or you can deny what you see in your heart uh, and, and repress it and you can blame it on others uh, and become more and more of a fool. But either way, here's the point, you will not stay the same. You will not stay as you were. These are the two tests. C.S. Lewis gives this great illustration. He says, if you want to know if there are rats in your basement, don't do this. Don't walk to the basement door, <clears throat> clear your throat, and loudly say, oh, I think I'll go downstairs and see if there are any rats in my basement. And then don't jiggle the knob uh, and open the door in a very slow, leisurely way. Turn on the light. Clear your throat again and walk down the steps loudly and slowly. And when you get to the bottom, you look around and say, I have no rats in my basement. <laughs> but if you really want to know if you have rats in your basement, you sneak up to the door. You very silently open the door. You flick on the switch and you jump to the bottom of the stairs and you look around and there are all the rats who are scurrying for cover. And then you'll know on the overhead. So prosperity and adversity, success and suffering, these are the tests which jump you to the bottom of your heart and enable you to see what's really there. Through these tests, you'll see stuff in your heart that you never thought was there. Now the question is this, what are you going to do about it? Because how you respond to these tests is what will make you either wiser or more of a fool but you will not stay the same. There's a scene in the Lord of the Rings where the king is going, through, at the end of the book, where he's going through these houses of healing uh, where all the poor people are dying or they're wounded and they're sick. And, and Aragorn, uh, the king, he comes to this little hobbit, uh, Myriadoc Brandybuck, and there he's fought against great evil. He's been wounded. He's lying on a sick bed in pain and suffering. And yet the king looks down and says this uh, on the overhead. This suffering will not darken his heart, but rather will bring him wisdom. <laughs> Again on the overhead. There's, these are the only two alternatives. Success and suffering, prosperity and adversity will either darken your heart or will make you wise. But it will not leave you as you were. So on the overhead again, these are the two, they're, they're the, they're the two tests. Now number two, why do they work? Proverbs 10, verse 16, the wages of the righteous bring them uh, life, but the income of the wicked brings them punishment. 
When the storm swept by, the wicked are gone, but the righteous stand firm forever. Verse 16, it talks about wages and income. That's prosperity. Uh, your return on investment, uh, dividends, uh, interest, income. Now, who are the righteous and who are the wicked? And the, on the overhead, listen very carefully. In the book of Proverbs, the righteous are those who disadvantage themselves for the sake of the community. And the wicked are those who disadvantage the community for the benefit of themselves. And what this proverb is saying is that if you're a wise, unselfish person, prosperity will make you more wise uh, and more unselfish. But if you're a foolish, selfish person, the worst thing that can happen to you is that all your dreams come true. The worst thing that can happen to you if you're a fool is success. Because it will just confirm you in your path. Romans 1, Paul says, the worst thing God can do to, to people who are turning from him and who are resisting his will is to give them up to their own desires. On the overhead, the worst thing God can do to you if you're a selfish person is to let you have a good life. So, so for, for a wicked, selfish person, prosperity is actually bad for you. Why? Because it does confirm you and harden you in your wicked ways. That's why the Lord disciplines those he loves. Meaning if he doesn't discipline you, if he ignores you, there's no relationship there. That's why, for example, God constantly chastised Yaakov, Jacob, but he let Esau run wild. He didn't care about Esau. Look at Proverbs 10, 25. When the storm has swept by, the wicked are gone, but the righteous stand firm forever. And the overhead, what this proverb is saying is that adversity reveals the foundations of your life. It reveals who you are. If you're already moving in the direction of foolishness and selfishness, adversity will make it far worse. It will reveal the self-centeredness of your heart. But the way you know you're a wise person is that you can take suffering and it does not overthrow you. The way you know you're on the path towards godliness uh, and wisdom and grace is that you can handle trouble. It doesn't overthrow you. It doesn't decimate you. That's what this proverb is saying. Now, why are both prosperity and adversity, why are they such potent tests? On the overhead, because they do two things. Number one, they show you the evil of your heart in general. And number two, they show, show you the idols of your heart in particular. And you can either deny what these tests are showing you and become a fool, or you can accept and embrace these lessons, even when painful, and grow. So let's start with some examples. Uh, there's an article in the Atlantic Monthly called Seeing Around Corners. It's about research and how mobs start to rampage. And he gives all these terrible examples about the Balkans and Rwanda and Indonesia and inner cities in the U.S. So you have all these modern examples of where large groups of people, hundreds, thousands, who are seemingly normal people, go on these rampages. And we saw this in our own cities, haven't we, recently? You know, and they loot and they pillage and they burn and they destroy and they, they do beatings, sometimes even killings. Why? Why would thousands of people who are otherwise fairly normal people, find some kind of spark 
that turns them into this mad, uncontrollable mob. And they begin to kill other people. How does this happen? Well, in the past, social scientists and psychologists uh, made up a term that they would attribute it to, and they called it uh, mass hysteria or group madness, where they would claim people would just snap and they'd be this hysteria where they don't, they don't know what they're doing. Uh, but research later showed this was not true. Follow-up interviews with participants in these mobs, these mob attacks, show that even if, when they're, they're embarrassed and they're humiliated and they're remorseful now over what they had done, they clearly knew what they were doing when they did it. They were perfectly themselves. They were perfectly rational. They were not out of control. So why do they do it? And the research shows that if you get into a situation where something you've always known was wrong, robbing, rape, pillaging, murder, uh, and to do it would bring you very bad consequences, what if you're surrounded by so many hundreds and thousands of people all doing it that you know there can't be any bad consequences to you doing it as well? What happens when the behavior you've always known to be bad, suddenly there's no consequences for it? There's no way you'll ever be caught. No consequences at all, at least in this life. And the research found that for many people, when favorable circumstances suddenly make bad behavior free of consequences, to their shock, many people find themselves wanting to join in and to do it. Here's how genocide or violent riots start. There's 10% of people who are bad eggs who start it. There's about 10% of people who are good eggs who don't join in. And then, but for the vast majority of the people, the other 80%, when there's no consequences for bad behavior, the stuff they've never thought they were capable of doing, they do it anyways. And they're shocked. Now, on the other extreme, do you know what happens when you begin to experience success? The first thing that happens when you're successful is you take credit for it. You start doing well financially. You start doing well in a relationship. Uh, you start doing well. The first thing you do deep inside is you take credit for it. Someone says, oh, you're brilliant. And you say, oh, no, 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 no. But inside you're saying, yeah, <laughs> yes, I am. I'm smarter than others. I'm harder working than others. I'm more savvy than others. You take credit for your success. It's the frog in the kettle thing. It's a slow, subtle process. But do you know what this means? Have you seen what happens when extremely wealthy people, they make a billion dollars uh, in widgets, let's say. They know all about widgets. Uh, but then, because they've been so successful in this one thing, they think they know about everything. <laughs> Because they made a billion dollars in widgets, they think they know more than the psychologist about therapy. And they feel they know more than the PhD theologian about theology. They know more than the top Wall Street investment banker about investments. They know more than the lawyer about law. They know more than everybody. Why? Because they've been telling themselves how great they are for so many years. And it's a slow, subtle process. But eventually, they, be, they trust their own insights and hunches and opinions and views way too much because they've been successful in business. 
but they become fools. Because the book of Proverbs says, anyone who's wise in his own eyes is a fool. Slowly, as time goes on, as you become more and more willing to take, to take credit for your own success, something goes wrong deep down inside you. And you start to be able to be cruel. And you start to be, to be haughty. And you start to be able to be arrogant. Uh, but it's gradual. And over time, you start to become capable of doing things you never thought you would have been capable of. But because of favorable circumstances, now you're able to, to, to get away with things. And maybe to your shock, you say, oh my God, I never, I never thought I could do such a thing. Something like that. But most people don't say that. Most people just rationalize it and keep on going down the path towards destruction. So success brings out the evil in your heart. But as we saw, so does adversity. So let's look at this example about adverse adversity. Uh, Dr. Ray-Ban Lewin uh, wrote a great commentary on the book of Proverbs. He's the son of, of Dutch immigrant parents who lived through the Nazi occupation of the Netherlands. And he wrote about this in his commentary on Proverbs 24, verse 10, which we'll put on the overhead, 10 through 12. It says this, if you falter in times of trouble, how small is your strength? Rescue those being led away to death. Hold back those staggering towards slaughter. If you say, but I knew nothing about this, does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who guards your life know it? Will he not repay everyone according to what they've done? On the overhead, uh, Dr. Ray Van Leeuwen, he writes this, uh, the overhead. During World War II, during the Nazi occupation, Dutch families had Jewish neighbors. And the next thing you know, all the Jewish families begin to disappear, taken away by the Nazis. And at one level, you knew they were being taken away to be killed. But if you would speak up, if you would object, or if you try to hide them or help them, you might be killed. Your family might be taken away. And so people said nothing. They chickened out in droves. Uh, but they denied it, of course. After the war, they said, we had no idea they were taking the Jews away to be killed. We just thought they were, they were taking them somewhere. We don't know where. We had no idea about these death camps. But of course, they had an idea. But under stress, when it's extremely hard, and there's negative consequences to being good, most people will not be good. Just like we said, when there's no consequences to being bad, all kinds of people will be bad. And in the same way, when there's negative consequences to being good, all kinds of people will not be good. They will chicken out. And then they'll deny it. And they'll find lots of ways to say, well, I didn't know. Under stress, you will see the worst in people. Under stress, you will see the worst in you. Even in small things. This coming week, when something goes uh, wrong for you, and you start to fall apart, you can see the weakness in your heart. You can see your anxiety. You can see your anger. You can see your selfishness. You can see your pride. Can't you see it? Both adversity and prosperity will bring out the worst in you. It'll bring out your ego. It'll bring out your self-centeredness. And the worst thing you can do 
is to rationalize it. It's to say, I knew nothing about it. Uh, it is to blame others or to try to justify yourself. Because this denial will just darken your heart instead of, instead of teach you wisdom. So on the overhead, uh, the first thing we see with these two tests uh, of, of adversity and prosperity is that they bring out the evil, they expose the evil hidden in your heart. The second thing we learn about these tests is that they show you not just the evil in general, but they show you your idols in particular. So for example, let's say you're, you're dating someone uh, who you really love and you really hope to, to marry someday, but then they break it off. No, they drop you. What's going to happen? Two possibilities. Some people will be filled with sorrow. They'll, they'll take months and months to get over it, but they'll eventually get past it. They'll learn how to depend more on other people. They'll learn how to depend more on the Lord. They'll debrief themselves, examine what they did wrong in the relationship. They'll begin to see certain flaws in their own character, certain ways in which they didn't know how to conduct relationships. And in the end, they'll be wiser. They'll get through it, uh, and, and, and they'll, they'll process uh, this adversity. But the other response is this. Some people will never get over it. They stay bitter against the opposite sex. Uh, they get bitter against themselves and say, well, I'm just a failure. No one will ever love me. You become bitter towards life, uh, cynical about love. You refuse to ever trust anyone again. You never get over it. Now, what's the difference? If you break up with someone and you're sad, uh, that's one thing. But if you break up with someone and you've lost all meaning in life and you feel like you don't even want to live, that's because that person has become an idol. That person has become more important to you than God. That person has become a greater source of significance and security in your life than, than anything else. That person has become a pseudo-God, uh, a pseudo-Savior, an idol. And it's the suffering of losing this person that will show you the inordinate attachment that you give uh, to love or romance or that relationship. And there's only two things you can do about it. You can admit that half my sorrow is the normal sorrow that comes from th the brokenness of life uh, and losing love. But that other half of my sorrow comes from inordinate attachment. It comes because I don't rest in and enjoy Yeshua anywhere near like I should. Uh, yeah, I believe in him, but he's really not the emotional center of my heart. And you can admit there is an idol here, and you can turn from it. That's one option. The other option is not to admit that there's, that's the real problem. Uh, and you can blame the other person. You can blame people around you. Uh, you can blame uh, the way uh, people of the opposite sex are. You can blame society. Or you can blame God. And you just become hard uh, and bitter and cynical and, and lose touch with, with, with who you are uh, and with your own flaws and sins and idols and less in touch with human nature. Uh, and you become more distorted in your views of things. And if this is you, you are becoming a fool. And you're becoming less and less li likely to make right choices when you come to these forks in the road. 
and the overhead. Adversity will show you the idols of your heart. It screams them at you. And you can either admit what's happening and repent of these idols and grow wiser, or like most people, you can just deny what's going on and refuse to see the inordinate suffering which comes from the inordinate, inordinate attachments which arise from the idols in your heart. But it's not only adversity that shows you the idols of your heart. So does success. Cynthia Heimel uh, writes this in The Village Voice. She knew a lot of famous TV stars and movie stars when they were just unknown, starving artists. And then they hit it big. Here's what she says about these celebrities. She writes, I pity celebrities. No, no, I really do. Then she actually names some. Sylvester Stallone, Bruce Willis, Barbara Streisand. They were all perfectly once pleasant human beings. <laughs> but now their wrath is awful. I think when God wants to play a really rotten, practical joke on you, he grants you your deepest wish and then giggles merrily when you realize you want to kill yourself. You see, Sly, Bruce, and Barbara, they wanted fame. They worked, they pushed, uh, and the morning after each of them became famous, they wanted to take an overdose. Because that giant thing they were striving for that fame that's going to be the answer to all their prayers and make everything okay, that's going to make their lives bearable, that's going to provide them with personal fulfillment and happiness, had happened. But they were still them. The disillusionment turned them howling and insufferable. Here's what she's saying. Very similar to what the book of Proverbs says. Often the worst thing that can happen to you is to be given the desires of your heart. Very few of us, of course, get this kind of ultimate worldly success. But the few who do are absolutely appalled at how little it really makes them happy. There's an enormous amount of dysfunction and unhappiness among the very elite. Why? The few who make it to the very top of the world's success ladder suddenly see something that's appalling. There's something so wrong with the human soul. There's a vacuum in the human soul so big, you can put in 5 billion, 10 billion, you can become the greatest star, and you're still not going to be happy. It will not fulfill you. It will not be enough. And when you realize this, you begin to say, all is vanity. Same old, same old. What in the world will ever satisfy me? How dysfunctional am I? The Bible says it's because there's a hole in your soul, in your heart, that's God-shaped. And therefore, your success screams at you, you need the Lord. And your adversity screams at you, you need the Lord. Both adversity and success scream at you, here is the way to wisdom. Will you hear it? Will you respond? Or will you just dig in your heels and then hunker down? Will you embrace God's call? Or will you despise it and ignore it and rationalize it away? It's on the overhead. That's what the two great tests are uh, to gain wisdom. And number two, why they work. And now finally, number three, how can we pass these tests? And the answer is, 
there's two things you've got to do according to the, the text here in Proverbs. So on the overhead, uh, there's two principles uh, are, are that you must, number one, humble yourself out of the spiritual danger of success. And number two, affirm yourself out of the spiritual danger of suffering. And you've got to do both of these with the gospel. So um, on, on the overhead, when you're successful, that's dangerous with the temptation to pride. And so therefore, you have to humble yourself with the gospel in order to become wise. Uh, and then also on the overhead, well, but when you're suffering and, and, and there's adversity, when everything is going wrong, you need to resist the temptation to despair or the temptation to, be, to become bitter. Uh, and so you need to affirm yourself with the gospel in order to become wise. James Yaakov spells this out, James 1 verse 9. The brother in humble circumstances ought to take pride in his high position in the Messiah. But one who's rich ought to take pride in his low position because he'll pass away like the wildflower. Think about what the gospel is. If you're religious, if you're a moralist, you feel like, if I lead a good life, God owes me. Or if you're a secular moralist, you say, if I live a good life, and if there is a God, well, he owes me a good life. And the religious moralist says, I've obeyed the Bible, uh, I've gone to shul, I've done my best, God owes me a good life. So if you're religious or if you're a moralist, you either feel like, number one, I, I'm living up to these great st these standards, which makes you confident, but not humble. You look down on others, and when suffering happens, you get mad at God, or you feel like you're not living up to these standards, and you're down on yourself. And this makes you humble, but not bold or confident. And when suffering happens, you get mad at you. You feel like you're a failure. Something's gone very wrong with you. You're the, you know, you are nothing. But what if you believe the gospel? And the gospel is, yes, I am wicked, but I am loved. I'm not saved because I'm a good person. I'm saved because of what Yeshua has done. I'm not saved because of my record, but because of his. His record. Attributed and imputed to me. Which means that right now, uh, I'm very flawed. I'm very messed up in many ways. But if I'm in Messiah, I am completely loved. Which means when you succeed, you remind yourself of the humility of the gospel. And when you're in adversity, you can remind yourself of the affirmation of the gospel. Here's how. First of all, when you get into success, red alert, <laughs> danger. Immediately we're told this in Proverbs 3, verse 9. Honor the Lord with your wealth. This doesn't say honor yourself with your wealth. Honor the Lord. When wealth comes in, make sure you admit, it's not me. Don't take credit for it in your heart. Don't take credit for it at all. Red alert. Don't get the, the, the process started. And the way you do that is with the gospel. Because the gospel says, I don't care how much the world sucks up to you. I don't care how beautiful you are. I don't care how rich you are. I don't care about your credentials. I don't care about your resume. I don't care about what all your accomplishments are. You are a sinner before God. 
and you're lost without the grace of Yeshua. And in God's sight, you're no better than anyone else in this world. No matter how ragged, no matter how uh, degraded, no matter how much of a failure anybody else is, you're no different. You're no better when it comes before you're standing before God's throne. Do you admit that? Use it on yourself to keep you humble during times of success. Drill this truth into your heart when you're tempted to exalt yourself on the overhead. It's your only hope. You must humble yourself to combat the spiritual dangers of pride and, and egoism in times of success. And, if you, and you must affirm yourself to combat the spiritual danger of self-pity and bitterness in times of adversity. Only then can you become wise. Look at Proverbs 3, verse 11. My son, don't despise the Lord's discipline and don't resent his rebuke. For the Lord disciplines those he loves as a father the son he delights in. When everything's going wrong, you can't let your suffering knock you off that your certainty that God loves you. You know, in the old days, before antibiotics, if you were out on the frontier and you got a wound, what did you do? You had to pour salt into the wound as a way to keep it from festering and getting infected. Now it hurt like crazy, of course, but you put salt in the wound for your ultimate healing on the overhead. In the same way, you've got to rub into your suffering the absolute certainty that the Lord loves you. Or else your suffering will go bad in your soul. It'll putrefy and result in despair and doubt and self-pity and bitterness, anger at God, loss of faith, cynicism towards others. So how do we assure ourselves of God's love? Well, these verses from Proverbs, 11 and, uh, Proverbs 3, verse 11 and 12, we, we just read, they tell us, if you have a relationship with the Lord, then the bad things that come into your life are actually discipline. You know, as a parent, there's always two issues you face when you have a child who, who needs discipline. For example, as I said earlier, your child lies to you. Uh, you've got to bring some pain uh, into his life. Because if you just let it go, the child will become a liar. Terrible. So for the child's sake, you may need to apply corporal punishment, spanking, send him to his room, not allow him to play with his friends for a week. But you've got to do something to save this child from becoming a liar. So one reason you want to bring pain into his life is for his sake. But another reason you may be tempted to bring pain into his life is for your sake. Because he's humiliated you. Uh, and you're saying, how dare this snotty little five-year-old do that to me? <laughs> and so an improper, wrong motivation for punishment is for your own self-centered reasons. So you've got to be very careful here. You've got to check your heart. Biblically, the word for discipline, uh, musar, it does not mean punishment. Uh, because the motivations are so different. So, for example, when the Lord punishes the nations uh, for their violence against Israel, he, he does not use the Hebrew word for discipline there. It's a different word for punishment. And the overhead, the Hebrew word for discipline really means pain for the sake of the person being disciplined. Just enough pain to teach them wisdom. Not to pay them for their sins. That, that's not the point. 
the whole point of godly discipline is to make the child a better person. The trouble is that as a parent, sometimes we want to punish our children to pay them back. Pay them back for, for their inconvenience, uh, for the humiliation, uh, for the egg on my face, uh, for their defiance and their rebellion. Sometimes we want to quit pain in their lives for our sake, uh, not for theirs. But unlike we earthly parents, God's discipline is perfect and just and is done out of a motivation of love. The text says that the Lord is a perfect parent. And if you have a love relationship with him, you must live in this knowledge. We live in a world that's broken. Uh, there's all kinds of bad things happening all the time uh, because we live in, in a world that's broken by evil and sin. Someday the Lord will fix it. But for now, there's disaster. There, there's sickness and disease. There's crime and war and violence and sorrow and death. There's all kinds of suffering. And it, eventually, it affects everyone on the overhead. But we're told this. If you create through repentance and trusting in Yeshua, a love relationship with the Lord, the Lord arranges your suffering so that it's discipline, not punishment. Discipline that if you embrace it, will ultimately be productive and sanctifying and enable you to grow in godly wisdom. You are going to have suffering. That's inescapable. But he is going to arrange it so that nothing ever comes into your life except that which is for you. You need to be humbled. You need to learn wisdom. It's all sorts of things you'll never learn, though, without suffering coming into your life. And you asking the Lord to use it to make you more like him. The Lord says, I want you to realize that anything bad that comes into your life is ultimately through my arrangement. Because I love you. Indeed, I delight in you. And to the degree you understand that, to that degree, your suffering won't putrefy, but it will make you wise instead of, instead of darkening your heart. Do you believe that? Do you understand that? Imagine a little child comes up to you, throws her arms around you, and says, you're the best, I love you. Now, she's just a little child. What does a child know? And yet, it feels so good, doesn't it? Because that's what we need more than anything else. Adoration. We need it. It's like water. It's like food. It's like air. But if that builds you up, do you know that Yeshua loves you even much, much more than that? Do you know Yeshua delights in you much, much more than that? On the overhead, do you know that if you're in Messiah, the Lord delights in you as a father delights in his son? To the degree you live in the joy of that, to that degree, suffering and adversity will make you something great. That's what the book of Proverbs is saying. That's why C.S. Lewis says, to say, the Lord does, to say to the Lord, Lord, don't let anything bad happen to me, ironically, is really a way of saying, don't love me. He writes this. We'll put it on the overhead. He gets here. He says, his love is more than mere kindness. Kindness cares not whether its object becomes good or bad, provided only that it escapes suffering. But if God is love, 
He is, by definition, more than mere kindness. He often rebukes us and disciplines us, but in doing so, he's actually paid us the compliment of loving us. We are a divine work of art. Now, over a sketch drawn idly to amuse a child, an artist may not take much trouble, but over the magnum opus of an artist's life, the work which the artist loves the most, the artist will take endless trouble and the artist would doubtless thereby give endless trouble to the picture if it were alive. One can imagine an alive picture after having been rubbed and scraped and recommenced for the tenth time, wishing it were only a thumbnail sketch whose making was over in a minute and not a magnum opus. In the same way, it's natural for us to wish that God had designed us for, for a less glorious and less arduous destiny. But then we're wishing not for more love, but for less. You ask for a loving God. You ask for a loving God, you have one. Not a senile benevolence that drowsily wishes you to be happy in your own way. No, but the consuming fire himself the love which made the worlds as persistent as an artist's love for his work. That's what you have in Yeshua. Nothing less. How do you know God really loves you? And what you're going through is discipline and not punishment. Because Yeshua came into the world and he passed these tests for you. He was the most successful person ever. But he didn't let it go to his head. And he suffered horribly, but he trusted in his father in the midst of it. Yeshua was the one son who did not need either punishment or discipline. He was perfect, so he didn't need discipline. He never sinned, so he didn't need punishment. But he took our punishment, the punishment we deserve, so that you can know whatever comes into your life is only the loving father's discipline. He delights in you. That's why these tests work. And with that knowledge is how you can pass these tests. By trusting in the one who passed them for you. And thereby begin to become wise. Amen. Let's stand and pray. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. Hallelujah. Thank you, Father. Give like the music team to come on up. Thank you, Lord. Hallelujah. Thank you. Thank you, Father, for, these, for your word today. Hallelujah. We thank you, Lord, for, your, for the book of Proverbs. Um, it's, you know, teaching us wisdom. Thank you, Lord, for showing us that both the success and suffering, both prosperity and adversity, are these two great tests that show to us, that reveal to us what's really deep down in our hearts, under the surface, and that we can become wise by acknowledging it and repenting or we can become fools by denying and repressing it. But either way, we will not stay the same. And for success and prosperity to make us more godly, uh, more humble, more generous, Lord, we acknowledge we need your discipline. For you discipline those you love, Lord, as, as a father does a son. So, Lord, help us to receive your discipline and to see it not as punishment, but as training in righteousness.
Lord, when you bring prosperity or adversity into our life, Lord, use it to show us both the evil in our hearts in general uh, and the idols in our hearts in particular. And Lord, then help us to repent and to turn from our idols and to turn to you, Yeshua. Lord, we repent of these inordinate attachments, uh, Lord, that, we, that uh, we, have, we have with certain relationships or certain things. Lord, I make you, Yeshua, the emotional center of my heart. Yeshua, help me to see myself as a sinner, needing your grace so that I humble myself out of the spiritual danger of success and affirm your love for me to avoid the spiritual danger of adversity. Thank you, Lord, for demonstrating your love for me by coming into our world, uh, undergoing and passing these tests for me through the suffering of the cross. We pray this in your name, Yeshua. Amen. Shabbat shalom.